All righty. The, uh, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Many of us are quite familiar with that context of that statement, and when we are children, we think, yeah, right. <laughs> Hopefully, as we grow up and have our own children, we can understand a little bit more about the pain of being on the giving end of the rod. There's no sadistic pleasure taken by a godly parent in the pain of his children. Pain is not something that we should enjoy either giving or receiving. We do know that it is, a, it is necessary, and we give it because there's a greater end being served in obedience to God. I'm going to read to you from Proverbs 29:15 About the rod, Solomon, I didn't have it marked, my apologies. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The rod and reproof gives wisdom. Through the pain of the rod, God is changing the hearts of children and producing them in, in them the fruits of holiness. And because we love our children, we apply pain to them when they, stray off, when they stray off course in order that they may be corrected and walk in the right paths. As culture builders, parents must develop and maintain the boundaries of the culture, the, the culture that we're supposed to be developing in the home. Just like laws in our land are there to, as boundary markers to maintain the culture of our, uh, of our country, of our state, of our city, so it is in our homes as well. We have those in our church as well. We need boundaries for the culture, and they need to be enforced. This involves, as I mentioned last time, understanding who you are, who the child is, and our respective relationships with God. Parents are given the authority by God to create this culture. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Parents create and maintain a culture that is clearly defined and purposeful. We all know who we are and what we are to do. This positive mission gives everyone in the home what we might call positive disciplines. We work hard, we pray hard, we worship hard, we feast hard, we laugh hard. This is what we do. This is how, this is, this, these are the positive directions of our home. These positive disciplines are the standards by which any deviation is then clearly seen. When someone's behavior or attitude is out of line with the culture God has called us to build and maintain, it has to be corrected. As our Heavenly Father corrects us, we are to image Him and correct our children, helping them conform to the standards so that they can enjoy God's reward in later life. Cultures must be guarded from outside enemies as well, as well as enemies within. The boundaries or borders must be maintained, as Texas is learning, right? Now, I will touch on why we have the responsibility more in the sermon probably on Sunday, but I thought it appropriate for this setting to move to the how aspect of corrective discipline because that is one of the big questions of parents. How do I correct bad behavior? How do I correct wrong attitudes? How do I uh, correct my child? So let's talk about how to apply the correction or the chastisement. First of all, I want to talk to you about methods and principles. As I go through this, young parents especially are looking for how to do things right. And that is certainly commendable. You want to do things right. Some are prone to make a checklist and have a strict regimen about the chastisement process. 
and this can sometimes slip quickly into an exaltation of particular methods that replace the principle. I'm not trying to formulate a rigid checklist for you to go through every time you chastise your child. I'll make some suggestions, and you might have some patterns of chastisement that are generally adhered to. But I want you to understand the principles of the application of the rod so that you will be able to meet the challenges you will face in child rearing at different stages of parenting because your child is going to go through the different stages from one to five and from five to ten and then teenage years and then uh, of course then they leave the home hopefully and don't spend all their time in your basement playing video games all right that's you don't want them there again this is not to say that you should not have some basic routines that you go through in chastisement there's nothing wrong with routines they provide structure and structure provides stability for your children but we cannot be slaves to particular methods all the time these are there are at least three reasons why you can't exalt the methods over the principles in chastising your children first of all you cannot anticipate every situation in which your child will need chastisement one problem with simply having rigid methods that essentially ignore the underlying principles is that you can't possibly think of every situation in which your child will need this chastisement you're not you're, you're not all-knowing you don't have a list of rules for everything your child or your children are full of surprises. <laughs> they will get you in situations that you could have never anticipated. You, <laughs> I won't even go through some of them. All right, you have your own examples. If you're bound to a checklist at these times, you're going to be flustered. Not, you're not going to know what to do. This is one reason why you must understand the underlying principles of chastisement. And when you do, you begin to think through the best way to deal with the situation as it is presented. You and your child, again, are not machines. Chastisement is not the same as going to fix the transmission of a car. You are both humans and more complex than any machine could be. Therefore, you must deal with your children as the image-bearing creatures that they are. Now, if you try to deal with your children mechanically, it's going to frustrate you, both you and the child, and it will frustrate you as the parent because, again, not every situation is within the box. You're not in the box, all right? If it, were, it, it, it will frustrate your child because you may not be taking into account certain situations that should have some influence on the way you're dealing with him. Your child will be able to sense that there's no real care for him. You're just going through some motions here. You're just going through some duty that's being performed. You're not thinking about this. You're just swinging something or you're grounding him or you're doing something, but you're not thinking about what's going on. You have to be careful about that. Second, being slaves to particular methods tends to promote self-righteousness. If, you, if your method is better than what everybody else is doing in your estimation, then you will tend to become arrogant about your methods. You will have a difficult time discerning whether or not the underlying principles are even being reinforced in other children. You'll have no grace for anybody else in the Christian community. This is no small matter when you live in a community of believers. It becomes a problem, sad to say, when people go through particular child-rearing seminars or books. There have been churches that have split over particular methods employed by certain child-rearing gurus. I don't think the gurus necessarily wanted this, but their, their students went to seed on the methods that were suggested. This is not to say that we can never say someone is actually doing it wrong. Remember, there are bedrock principles to be enforced. But we must be wiser than the immature legalist who thinks if you're not doing it his way all the way down the line, then you're doing it wrong. 
For example, at an early age, that is when our children were in high chairs, uh, before they could s speak, Susan and I taught our children how to communicate with their hands at the table so that they didn't scream, cry, yell, arch their backs, etc., in order to get what they wanted. If they wanted more food or if they were all done or whatever, we taught them ways to communicate that with their hands that, so they wouldn't get loud. We taught them, for instance, that when they were all done, they could just wave their hands like that, all right? Just like that. The principle is you are to respect others, all right? When you're all done, you don't let the world know you're all done by screaming and yelling and drawing all this tension in the room. You don't do that. You learn how to respect others by communicating properly with others. In line with that, there's a, there, there are acceptable and unacceptable ways to communicate with respect to others and in respect for others. Now, this method was good for us, all right? We taught them to wave their hands. That's good for us. But if you teach your children to communicate appropriately to, in respect of others by, say, patting their stomachs, we don't have a battle over methods. We don't form groups of parents who promote hand-waving versus parents who promote stomach-patting. All right? <laughs> the underlying principle is respect in communication. Teach your children to respect others by the way they communicate. There are different ways to apply the principle. Our, our method may help you, and that's fine, but we're not starting the hand-waving cult, okay? Uh, the principle is important. Third, being slaves to methods may cause you not to deal with the real, that is the heart, Issues. The purpose of chastisement, and I'll deal with this more as we go here, the purpose of chastisement is not simply to get through it, to have all the ticks marked off, all the boxes checked. You are aiming for the real issues of the heart. This means that you must understand the situation of disobedience, the principle, and deal with what's going on. What's this child doing? Why is what your child did wrong? How can this be corrected? It's not just about punishment of what was wrong, but about how can you steer him in the right direction? What positive direction should he take? Are there any positive qualities in what your child did that need to be encouraged? For example, it is very good to be inquisitive. It is not good to dig through cabinets mama has told you not to dig through. All right? It is good. <laughs> It's, it's good to be inquisitive. It's not good to stick a butter knife in a socket. All right? I told you not to do that. All right? Now, he'll learn pretty quickly the hard way, but you don't want him to. <laughs> it's good for little boys to be brave. It's not good to jump from the roof of the house when Dad said, don't do that, unless there's a trampoline and a pool to land into. Uh, other than that, don't do this. All right? Dad, you may not want to encourage that. That stresses mom out. All right? It is the rod, though, and rebuke that give wisdom, not simply the application of the instrument that afflicts physical pain. We have to teach. We have to encourage. We have to, we have to see what sin is distorting in their lives because sin is a leech, and that's what, it, that's what it does. It can't create on its own. It latches onto something good and righteous, and it twists it. It twists bravery into stupidity. It twists inquisitiveness into some type of uh, obsessive covetousness. 
but there are these underlying righteous qualities that have been distorted and you have to say what why is he doing it what's going on what is the positive thing that's going on here how can we shed that negative thing and how can we get him uh, he's he's very stubborn well being very determined is very good you want somebody determined you want your child to be very determined persevering you don't want him stubborn in disobedience all right so you you teach him you say okay he's very determined i had battles with some of my children particularly one of my children who i had a, a, an older lady in our church when i was pastoring this baptist church uh we were she, he was a particularly strong-willed child and he's she told us very plainly she said there are no such things as strong-willed child they're only weak-willed parents i said thank you very much <laughs> you deal with him no i didn't <laughs> We dealt with him, but battles with his, his perseverance <laughs> in disobedience. Now he's, he's, he's a great, great young man, good husband, good father, but he had to learn that his perseverance had to be directed toward the right way, his determination, and, but it took, some, it took some time. It took, some, it took a lot of battles, but there were good things there. Apply the principle. What needs to be corrected where is it going, all right? Where, where, where does he need to go with this? The goal of chastisement. What is the goal of chastisement? It is repentance, forgiveness, and restoration, all right? Repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. What I'm speaking about here, when I speak about chastisement, I speak about corrective discipline, is the immediate goal of the situation in your chastisement, in your correction, this does fit, of course, with the larger goals that I've discussed earlier. But at the, at the time of chastisement, you're wanting to restore the relationship that has been severed by sin, the, the disobedience of your child. There are three things that need to take place when correcting your child. Keep in mind that their ages need to be considered when dealing with them. Some of these things are not going to look the same for your one-year-old as they do for your five-year-old. And they're not going to look the same for your 10-year-old as they do for your five-year-old. Again, think through these things. Think through the principles. But first of all, you need confession. When your child disobeys you, that is a sin against you, and it is a sin against God, because God has told your child to obey you. He said it in the fifth word. He said it in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. That is the first, and the first step is confession. In confession, a person admits that a particular action that he's performed was wrong. He takes responsibility for his actions. If we take the original encounter dealing with, uh, with sin that our father took with Adam, his son in the garden, I think we can learn quite a bit about how to approach confession with our children. You can use questions to provoke confession. Again, this must be age appropriate, but when God approached Adam and Eve in the garden, he asked them questions about what they had done, seeking to prov provoke confession from them so when we're dealing with our children especially when we have not caught them red-handed we can ask them questions in order to elicit a response of confession from them you must remember that your children think that they can hide things from you you were never their age they never they 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 don't think you you just came out like this you were big all right and you never went through this, and so they think they're really sly. They can hide things from you, and they're very obvious to you, of course. 
There may be times to say, I know you did it. I can see the evidence right there. But there may be other times when you ask questions to seek a confession in order to help develop character in your children. It develops truthfulness. It also develops the owning of responsibility. I did it. I own it. And, and in this day and age, <laughs> to own responsibility is a huge deal. The cultural trends are moving, of course, away from that. I'm to blame for nothing. Everything's everybody else's fault. It's culture's fault. It's uh, intersectionality, and I'm oppressed, and everything else. And this is very important in a Christian culture is to own what we have done and to take responsibility for ourselves. And so asking questions to provoke conf confession can help them with that. Confession, again, and this leads right into this next one, confession teaches them to take responsibility for their actions. God was willing, uh, God was calling out confession from Adam and Eve concerning their sin. Instead, instead of confessing, they began blame shifting. Adam blamed his wife, and Eve blamed the serpent, and this was and is not acceptable. This is not a confession. This is no admission of personal wrong. When you call for a confession from your children, you're teaching them that there is no one to blame for their sins but themselves. You did it. They must learn this at an early age. You don't have to teach them to blame shift. That's an amazing thing. They do not have to be taught to blame shift. You'll especially see this when you have several children. If the Lord blesses you with several children, they, the inmates learn to conspire. Okay? You ask one of them the question, did you body slam your brother? He responds, if he wouldn't have done what I didn't want him to do, I would have never body slammed him. It's his fault. That's an admission, but it's not a confession. Okay? In fact, it's far from a confession. He's blaming his brother for the wrong actions that he took. We must teach our children like our Heavenly Father teaches us. When we sin, there is no one to blame for our sin but ourselves. We must not make excuses but seek restoration. Restoration can only come when there is a confession, when every person in the relationship owns his responsibility. A confession for the situation mentioned earlier would be, yes, I body slammed my brother. I shouldn't have done that. Period. That's it. But we all, whether child or adult, all have a problem with this. Confession's hard because it means I own it all. Calling for confession gives a context for teaching your children that lying is unacceptable. Hopefully your children know this already, but they're going to test it all the time. This gives you an opportunity to put them to the test, and that's legitimate, should be done. When our Heavenly Father asked questions to Adam and Eve, he was putting them to the test to see if they would be truthful about their actions. All of you have been children. Many of you have faced this situation. You know what is going on in your child's mind when faced with this dilemma. Sometimes your children, especially some with particular personalities, don't mind taking the all-or-nothing bet. That is, they will take the chance on lying to get out of trouble and risk being in more trouble. You must teach them that this is a bet that they will always lose, whether, they, whether you catch them right now or not. Lying never wins. 
Sometimes their lies are really obvious. You told your child not to get into the cookies before supper. You go into the kitchen, and she is sitting on the counter chewing with chocolate all over her face, and you say, did you get into the cookies? And with a mouthful, she shakes her head, no. <laughs> Didn't do it. Well, that's easy. It's not so easy when you have one, uh, one that is a little more conniving, or as I said, the inmates begin to work together. In these times, especially within faithful Christian context, you make appeals to their conscience. If, if you don't have hard evidence against their lying, you express your trust in them, and tell them, tell them, God knows if you're lying. It may not, that may not work immediately. And you may go back to your room frustrated and you talk it over. Wife and husband talk it over. I uh, can't believe, you know. But it, so it may not work immediately, but it does have good long-term effects. By the, by the way, your children need to get into extra trouble for lying. Okay. However you do it, they need to be chastised for what they did originally and for lying about it. These, those are two offenses. And I gave two spankings, but however you do it, it needs to be done. Don't encourage their lying by lying to them about what you will and will not do. For example, the threatening, repeating parent. You do that one more time, and I'm going to spank you. And you've just said it five times. It, you can't do that. They're, they're going to keep, they're going to say, he's lying. He's not doing it. <laughs> I'm pushing him. And so lying breaks down trust in relationships. And there can't be a happy relationship where there is little or no trust. This is not the way God created us to live in a relationship with one another. This is not a part of that Trinitarian culture. Confession is vitally important in the presence of sin. But so is forgiveness. Confession is not the end of the process. It's only the beginning the next area that needs to be dealt with is this forgiveness. The asking for and granting of forgiveness is based upon the fact that confession has taken place. And a few items are involved in forgiveness when dealing with your child. They need to ask for forgiveness. Our children are learning in this process how to deal with their sin. You're teaching them how to relate to God. You're teaching them how to relate to others. This is the context in which we deal with our covenant children. First, they learn that they must take responsibility for their sin through confession. Then they, need to, they learn to take responsibility for their sin through asking forgiveness. What they learn through this is that the sin that they have committed has incurred a moral debt. They owe you. They owe God. That is, you have wronged another person and God, and you owe them. You're, you're now in debt to them. I love the way Matthew records the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> Jesus teaches us to pray, and I know this is deep theologically, but he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we know from Luke that we can, we can talk about trespasses, we can talk about iniquities and sins. Debts is a, just a, a beautiful word to describe this. When we say we incur debts, Debts need to be erased. They need to be forgiven. While there may be times to, to only say, I'm sorry or I apologize, this does not acknowledge the same thing as, please forgive me. And if you don't believe me, go home and do that in your relationship. I'm sorry or I apologize is much easier to say than please forgive me. Asking for forgiveness is 
a humbling experience in which you are submitting yourself to the mercy of another person. Sometimes a simple I'm sorry keeps you on the same level with the person. You bump buggies or shopping carts, whatever you say down here, uh, in Walmart or wherever you shop down here. And you, oh, I'm sorry. You have not incurred any moral debt. You've, you've accidentally bumped into somebody, and that's sufficient for that time. But when you willfully sin against someone, you need forgiveness. You don't need understanding. Your child needs to learn at an early age to say the words, please forgive me. By the way, that will help him. That will help her tremendously in their upcoming marriages. They learn that soon. That fosters humility. Asking forgiveness should not be limited to you as a parent. We teach our children to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. When they sin against you, they have sinned against God also, the one who told them to obey you. Remember them, in, remember them excuse me, remind them of this commandment. Uh, once they learn it, ask them to quote it to you. Pray with your child. Helping him learn to confess his sin before God. It's okay to coach them. They need, you're teaching them how to pray. That's, that's fine, okay? Well, I want it to be from the heart. Well, they have to learn how to pray, and that's what you're doing. You're teaching them, all right? You ask me for forgiveness. Now we're going to turn, and you're going to ask God to forgive you. Well, how do I do that? You say, dear God, I disobeyed mom and dad. Please forgive me. You teach them how to pray. They need to learn how to ask for forgiveness from their Heavenly Father. And by this process, you're teaching your child that sin is serious, and it needs to be dealt with quickly, and it needs to be dealt with completely. It is not enough to tip your hat to God and say, sorry, rather you have to confess and ask for forgiveness. And then as a parent, it is, it is vital that you grant forgiveness. They need to hear your absolution. Just as you instruct your children to ask, please forgive me, you need to learn the words, I forgive you, or you are forgiven. This is important also. In granting your child forgiveness, you are reinforcing the fact that, yes, what he did was wrong, and it stands in need of forgiveness. But there's also mercy that is extended to him. His debt's covered. He, is, he can be and is forgiven. The debt's been paid. You can remind your child that God promises forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9. God makes the promise to forgive us when we confess our sins. Since you are God's representative to your children, help them understand that through your actions, his promise to them. You might be tempted to say, oh, oh son, it was nothing. You, you have to resist that temptation. It was something. That's why you're there. So tell them you're forgiven. Seeing the tears and the pain of your children at times might lead you to tell them to forget about it or it was nothing, but you can, you can be compassionate without dismissing the seriousness of sin. God did it. So grant forgiveness. Verbally tell your child that he is forgiven. He needs to hear it, and you need to say it. Now, issues in need of restitution. There may be times in which your child has committed a sin that requires that restitution be made to a wronged person. For example, he's broken something in the house because he's been disobedient. They, the, your, your boys were wrestling. You told them not to wrestle in the den, and they, they, they knocked over mom's vase or the lamp or something like that, and they broke it. Forgiving your child does not always mean that he does not need to take responsibility for replacing this item. You may choose to let it go at times. That's a judgment call. 
But then again, there may be times when you need to emphasize that full restitution may be, needs to be made, must be made. That's the way it's going to be out when he, when he gets out in the world. He needs to learn that now so that he can avoid as many of those issues as possible. This does not have to be immediate. You can set out a plan. He can work it off or whatever, but he, can, he, can, he needs to make restitution at times. Jesus proclaimed that salvation had come to the house of Zacchaeus when he stated his, Zacchaeus had stated his intention to restore fourfold to any from whom he had stolen. Forgiveness can be granted even before the actual money or whatever has been paid. Of course, it can also be withdrawn if the child doesn't follow through. But there needs to be forgiveness and then reconciliation. Your goal in chastisement is the restoration of proper relationships. Everything needs to be set straight at this time. When you leave your little session, and by the way, I speak here with experience, and I've been through these and doubted it at first, but I realized, no, this, this, this really does happen. When you leave your little session of, of correction, both you and your child should normally leave happy and reconciled. Show proper affection to your child. Show him that you've truly forgiven him. You've accepted him. And again, this brings resolution to the situation. Reconciliation is the goal. A joyful relationship. Also, when it's over, it's over. Leave it there. Don't pick it up again unless your child does the same thing again. But if the action is corrected, don't keep dragging it up every time he does something else. Your goal is heart training. You as God's representative must demonstrate to your child the love of our Heavenly Father and the certainty of His promises that when He's forgiven, He is forgiven. We can do all of this, we, we can do all of this all we want in words, but if we don't show them through this reconciliation, it will be difficult for them to trust those promises. So there needs to be confession and repentance and reconciliation. There also needs to be the application of the rod. In the application of the rod itself, there are three basic principles that I want you to remember. First of all, the rod is an instrument. The rod is a tool that is used to correct errant behavior. God uses instruments to correct us, and he gives us instruments to correct our children. At the early stages of life, the rod takes the form of some sort of spanking instrument, or at least some sort of instrument that causes pain. The rod, changes, the, the rod changes shape as children grow older. I could make recommendations here from experience, but generally, you need an effective instrument for spanking. I'm not even questioning this now. I'm, I'm going to get to the objections here in a moment, but I'm not even questioning this now because this is what God commands us to do. Sometimes you might have to use your hand in an emergency situation, but I wouldn't recommend that all the time. Paddles, wooden spoons, five-gallon paint stirrers, and by the way, if you go to if you go to Home Depot and ask them for five-gallon paint stirrers without buying paint, um, they will wonder. Uh, ask me how I know. Uh, I, I didn't buy paint. I need these five-gallon paint stirrers. They're free, by the way. And um, they say, well, well, you getting any paint? Nope. Why do you need them? Uh, are you going to give them to me? Um, because if you're, uh, I'm not answering any questions right now. All right? Uh, you're not wanting to injure your child in a bad way, but you do want him to know that something has taken place here. All right? Belts are sometimes difficult to control. You need to be careful with those. You're not wanting to give your child a flogging. That's not what this is about. 
As your child grows older, the rod becomes more of a principle to be employed. Isolation, the removal of privileges and things such as that are valid applications of the principle. Also, as your children grow older, you can begin to deal with them more on the level of showing them two ways and their ends as the father does with the son in Proverbs. Okay, son, there are two ways. You can choose the way of foolishness, the way of wisdom. Here are the results of both. I can't spank you all the time. I can't get you to do the right things. You're going to have to do what you choose. But I can tell you, if you go this way, this is going to be bad. If you go this way, this is going to be good. At some point in their lives, they need to realize, they need to realize that as a parent, you can't always control their choices, and neither do you want to. They're going to have to choose what is good, true, and beautiful because it's the right thing to do. They need to know the consequences of wrong, sinful, and even unwise choices. This doesn't really happen before the age of five. That's not the time to reason. Proverbs is dealing more with the adolescent son, a teenager or above. At this point, you ask your child, what, at this point, you ask your child, what do you want? These are the consequences of the two ways, as I just mentioned. All right? But when they're young, it's a matter of, okay, this is going to have to, this corrective discipline. This is going to have to be spanking or something like that. Spanking needs to be measured or controlled. That is, you don't need to lose control while spanking your children. This can happen if they've done something really unbelievable that have made, and, and have made you extremely angry. You have to control your anger. That could easily turn into abuse, and that's not the point. Biblical chastisement, remember, is not about me releasing my frustrations upon the child. It's about correcting wrong behavior and changing his heart. In short, it's for the child's good, and it's not for my pleasure. Determine the number of swats you're going to give your child and make them count. You need to do this, especially if you're prone to losing your temper. But chastisement does need to be painful. A spanking is not effective if it is administered through layers and layers of clothes or thick, a thick diaper. I remember having one of my children, uh, especially, who liked to be kind of a clown, and he knew he was going to get a spanking. He came down, he had on every pair of underwear that he owned. And uh, it was about that thick. All right, Daddy, I'm ready. Uh, no, you're not. All right, this is, that's not going to work. The child, may know, the child may know that you have spanked, but the factor of pain has not been applied properly if it's through thick clothes. Again, Again, this is not abuse. This is purposeful, measured pain, controlled pain, but it's pain nonetheless. And what you're doing is saving them from greater pain that they will have later on in life. You tell them that there are causes and effects of their actions. This is pain, and this is pain coming from a loving parent. But the pain you'll get from out there is not from people who love you. All right? So if you have to work around the diaper on the leg, that's what you do, all right? But when older and beyond the spanking age, chastisement still must be painful. You gotta take away something. It'll be something that causes pain, but this pain is effective, it's necessary. But again, once this is all done, you want reconciliation. Now there are objections to spanking. I don't know if you know that, but there are in this world. And one of them is spanking teaches violence is the answer to solving all problems. 
Now, with many of the things that I've seen uh, that people call spanking, I, I can see how people would misunderstand it. If you watch some news documentary, they go, on, they go to a house where parents are angry, and they're just hitting their children. This is not measured, it's not controlled, it's not loving, it's not biblical spanking. That's being a bully. So in this case, yes, that promotes violence as the answer to the problems. And biblical chastisement is different. It teaches that there are painful consequences to wrong actions. But again, the chastisement is delivered for the good of the child, not the frustration of the parent. And when applied this way, the child does not see it as violence. He does not see it as violence. Besides this, I'd be interested in seeing a survey of how many violent criminals were lovingly spanked by their parents. Children are born violent. That needs to be curbed. It's kind of funny, when ours got older, they went around and found all the spankers. And um, they wrote notes on them and thanked us for spanking them. They didn't see it as violence. They saw it as helping them. It curbed, it curbed their violence. Their, their violence is curbed through this loving chastisement. Some people say spanking doesn't work. Many people who say this have tried it once or twice and given up because they've got strong-willed children. If it's not a quick fix, they're not interested. Well, this is parenting is not a quick fix thing. Chastisement, corrective discipline, discipline is not a quick fix thing. This is not short term. It's not a quick fix program. These are not machines. Again, they are humans. If you are not consistent with spanking, if you're not consistent with discipline, if you're not consistent in parenting, period, no, it doesn't work. It can't work if you're not doing it. But if you apply spanking consistently and lovingly, then yes, it does work. God promises it. Another reason that spanking might not work for some parents is because they don't make it effective enough. I had children who would, after I spanked them, and I'm a pretty good-sized guy, they'd look at me, and they wouldn't say it, but I could see it in their eyes. It's like, is that all you got? <laughs> no, that's not all I've got. <laughs> they are some that are very tough. All right, But it's hard. You don't want to call your child pain. I know it's difficult. But you have to make the licks count. It does have to be painful. The point is that pain must be involved because pain trains us. Whether you're talking about positive discipline, and we'll, we can talk about that more and more. Uh, if you're training for a marathon, pain trains you, both mentally and physically. So it is with this. It's the principle beyond it all, behind it all is that we're trained by pain. Other parents, other parents don't think spanking works because they have an improper approach, like the family in which the parents go around just hitting children all the time, calling it spanking. These parents are not approaching the situation to make the child better. They're just reacting out of frustration. This is, it, it comes as a, a, a complete package the rod and reproof, all the discipline is a package together, all right? Some people say, well, I'll be arrested if I spank my children. That's a legitimate concern. 
okay, in society today. If someone reports you, you're guilty until proven innocent. This is something you always need to be cognizant of. Take proper precautions. Don't spank your children in public places. You're asking for some overzealous liberal to report you to the government. So you purpose to deal with these things at home, in private. Make rules before you go out <laughs> somewhere in public. Let your children know what's expected and what, will the, con what the consequences will be. If the children disobey you in public, promise them that this will be taken care of when they get home. All right? Now, some children will say, they get in trouble at the grocery store, I'm going to get it anyway. So I'm just going to keep on going. You need to let them know that there's a penalty for each offense. Okay? They're about to get 99 years for every offense. <laughs> They're not going to send retail and be spanked wholesale. Find a pediatrician that you know will be friendly to spanking you. You don't want your doctor to be an anti-spanking advocate, all right? Last of all, there are things to avoid in chastisement, in this type of uh, chastisement, corrective chastisement. Avoid abuse. Again, this goes to how you approach chastisement. If, if you have problems controlling your anger, then you need to take some time to cool down before you spank your child. This is not about your anger. Your, your goal is not to permanently injure your child or inflict, to inflict pain for pain's sake or to be vindictive. Your goal is correction, reconciliation, and a holy, happy child. Avoid abuse. Secondly, avoid unjust punishment. There is a principle called lex talionis, and it is the law of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That is, the punishment should match the crime. Just as it would be unjust to give the electric chair for somebody, to somebody for speeding. So it would be unjust for you to punish your child severely for minor infractions. It's one thing for your child to eat a cookie before supper when he wasn't supposed to, and he might be legitimately spanked for this, but it will not be the same thing as spanking when he bows up against you and throws a humdinger of a temper tantrum and tears the house apart. Okay? Also, if you don't have the evidence to convict your child, quote unquote, of the crime, you don't have to spank him. But always remind him that as a child of God, he will never get away with anything. Eventually, it will come home to roost somehow. A third thing to avoid is yelling. There might be times when your child becomes, shall we say, loud in his cries of despair and rebellion. You don't want to get into a shouting match with your child. All that does is escalate the noise and the, and the tension levels, the anxiety levels. You have to stay calm. You have to be a calming presence. You may simply wait at him out and say, okay, that's two spankings. To say avoid yelling is not to say don't use a firm tone. There are times for this. But yelling is exploding on your child in verbally animated tones to try to get him to submit. But if you yell, out, if you yell about everything, your yelling eventually will mean nothing. You'll only come across as frustrated and sh shrill, and they won't, you, you, your child can sense you have no confidence in what you're doing, you're unsure that you're right, and you have to, you have to just get louder and louder and boisterous. That's, he's going he's gonna to sense that, he's going to know that. Stay in control of your emotions. Don't treat your children like animals. Avoid name-calling. Name-calling is destructive, it's not constructive. 
It is done out of frustration. Your children don't need to hear that they are stupid. They don't need to hear that they are idiots. If those words are used at all, direct them toward the activities and not the child. What you did was stupid. You're not stupid, won't you? If it, 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 because sometimes they do really stupid things, all right? But avoid calling them those names. Jesus says something about calling people, name, calling people names out of anger in Matthew 5. He says simply, don't do it. Avoid thinking spanking is not needed. Spanking may not be the only thing needed, but don't avoid it altogether as some out-of-date, barbaric way of dealing with children. And that is what you may hear from modern psychology. That is not what you hear from God's Word. This is a matter of believing God's Word over the words of creatures. Therefore, this is a matter of faith. It's, this is kind of like the, the whole you know, diet thing and eggs and things like that and caffeine. You know, 10 years ago, you can't eat eggs because you know, you're going to have a heart attack and die. Now they're the best thing in the world you can eat. We humans are very limited in our knowledge. God says, the rod and reproof give wisdom. He, 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 that's not going to change. All right? This is a matter of believing God's word over creatures. Now, there may be exceptional matters such as fostering children or even the process of adoption. In those situations, you have to be more creative in applying the principles, but the principle it remains the same. Avoid, avoid thinking spanking is not needed, but avoid also thinking that spanking is all that is needed. Again, this is not just about hitting your child. This is about molding your child. All these things that I've spoken about are are involved in biblical chastisement in one way or another. Just giving your child swats on the bottom will not be enough. Our children need to be instructed in the right paths. They need to learn how to deal with their sin. Biblical chastisement incorporates all these things. Last thing to avoid, and closing it out. Avoid the thinking which says, my parents didn't do any of this with me, and I turned out all right. And that's a matter of judgment. Sometimes we don't really know how messed up we are. We may not realize, you may not realize that you never learned how to properly deal with issues of sin and reconciliation. And certainly you, you turned out decent. You're not in prison, okay? That's a good thing. But don't you want your child to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ? Wouldn't you rather that your child learns lessons when he is four five and six rather than when he's 24 25 and 26 like some of us had to do i'm not promoting going back and talking about all the things your parents did wrong certainly they did things wrong we're going to do things wrong the issue is that from generation to generation we need to be getting better as we learn from the previous generations let's pray together father again we thank you for your chastisement of us we thank you that you love us and that uh, you do bring us through pain uh, in order to make us better and to increase holiness and the fruits of holiness in us. And now I pray again that you would help us to understand these things and apply them to our lives and to our children. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.